Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you in the house of the Lord this morning as we dive into our new series today. The King is coming. The King is coming. See, these days, this, this phrase does not have the same thrust and meaning that it used to throughout history. Here in America, if you heard, the president is coming, the president is coming, what that means for you is road closures, flight delays, maybe even cancellations. And if Hog Wild was in your menu that day, it would mean shortage of Hog Wild barbecue. If anything, you may just be frustrated at the president's visits, but if you really wanted to see the president, at best, you may be able to get a peek at his Air Force One or his motorcade as it came through town. And if you're really willing to risk and seeing himself and risk getting inside the security detail in the, the inner cordon, you will likely be tackled, hazed, and taken in for questioning. And if you're in England today, if you hear that the king is coming or the queen is coming, since it is more of a formal or a, a proper culture, you may even put on a nice shirt or a dress, and you would even brush your teeth to go meet the queen. But even with the British royalty, their, their reputation these days are a mixed bag, and it makes you question whether or not if you really want to see them. And their formal authority is really largely a representational authority, isn't it? This phrase does not strike fear in the hearts of citizens as it used to. You see, kings throughout history, they ruled nations, they ruled empires, and had the authority to wage war and take prisoners and put to death anyone they wished. The emperor Nero of the first century Roman Empire was one such king that people feared. Nero sent out his military to round up every Christian he could, then arrested them and had them clothed in skins of wild animals. Then in public display, he let wild dogs loose as the dogs attacked and killed the believers. Nero also dipped Christians in pitch and tar and lit them on fire to set his garden, his private garden. If that wasn't enough, he brought in Christians into the Colosseum and fed them to the lions for public display. The king is coming was afraid was a phrase that would have struck great fear because the king's authority was to be feared. But even the, the most powerful kings are only earthly kings that only rule for a short time a geographical real estate, and eventually they will die. Even emperors like Nero will cross from this life to death, and the king of the universe is the one that they will face to whom they will give an account. This king has the ultimate authority over the universe, and every decision that is made by every soul will be judged by him. This king is the Christ, who is the Lord Jesus. Hear the weight of his authority in his words from Matthew 10, 28. He said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. His reign is forever, and his authority is to be feared above any other authority here on earth. 
every single person will one day meet this king face to face and we will have to give an account for our lives unless we know this king personally. A great fear will fall on you in this judgment and where your soul will be judged to be eternally be either with him or separated from him. Perhaps this morning, you have never given thought to the most important questions of life and death. Is there a final judge that will give meaning to what is morally right and wrong in this life? And what will happen to me when I die? And if that is you this morning, this message of the good king is for you. For his judgment will determine your eternal destiny. Or maybe this morning you're a believer in Christ already, but you feel like you're in the wilderness of life. You feel isolated. Maybe you're homebound, or it's a major life decision or a transition that you're expecting, and you feel down, lonely, and in despair. Maybe the challenges of being single, or the challenges of raising children, or seeing your grandchildren growing up in this topsy-turvy world feels like you're alone in the wilderness. Well, if that's how you feel this morning, and this message that our good Savior has come to fight our battles is for you. Today we begin a new series from the Gospel according to Mark as we journey together in our next chapter of ministry here at Grace First. What we're about to see is a true story of the King who has come to wage war against his enemies to save his people. This morning we're going to see three important truths about this king. We're going to see the king's message, the king's nature, and the king's battle. We will see the king's nature, his message, the nature, and his war. So turn with me to the Gospel of Mark if you're not already there. And as we begin this chapter or this uh, message, I want to provide a, a good, healthy context of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel was written by John Mark, the part-time associate of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. We read earlier from uh, Acts 15 about Paul's disagreement, or I like to call a fight, with, uh, with Barnabas because Paul didn't like John Mark since he deserted them in Pamphylia. Well, this Gospel was written by that Mark. And, and whereas Paul would probably call him Mark the deserter or, or Mark the coward, but now don't worry, because Paul has a much better view of Mark later in his writings. Uh, we see Mark mentioned in, um, in Colossians, at the end of Colossians, as well as uh, Philemon. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, this is what Paul writes about Mark. He says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now throughout this gospel, we do not have an inscription of Mark as the author, but we know that Mark wrote it because all the 2nd and 3rd century church fathers, like Eusebius and Papias, they unanimously confirm his authorship. Of the four Gospels, Mark's Gospel was the first one to be written. Both Matthew and Luke likely had Mark's Gospel on their desks as they're writing their own Gospels. And Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and about 90% of the stories in Mark appear either in Matthew or in Luke. Certain passages in Mark are directly quoted uh, by Matthew and Luke almost word for word and then expounded to be used for their intended audience. 
So it's no surprise that due to its brevity, the Gospel of Mark was also the Gospel that was most neglected in the early church. Most early church fathers, including Augustine, would call the Mark's Gospel an abbreviated version of Matthew. And who was the audience that Mark was writing to? Mark was writing to the Gentiles in the Roman Empire. Well, how do we know this? Mark translates Aramaic words into Greek for his readers, and he uses number of Latin words like the value of the Greek coin with the Roman one, denarius. Other examples of these words include centurion, praetorium, and legion, just to name a few. And think of the Marx audience, okay, the Roman Empire. What do we know about the Roman Empire and its people? Well, like most Americans who watched the action-packed Super Bowl last Sunday, the Romans loved action. They enjoyed the Olympic Games. They enjoyed, sadly, the, the gladiatorial arena, the Roman gladiators. So Mark's gospel is fast-paced for this kind of an audience. And he paces his writing by using the Greek word euthis, which means immediately. It is used 42 times and only 12 times in the rest of the New Testament. Now, some scholars will argue that, you know, Mark was just a bad writer. He was like a third grader writing this gospel, and so he lacked style and skill and some vocabulary. Well, but there's a deeper purpose to the use of this word immediately. It's a bit like opening gifts on Christmas morning. As a teenager, I usually asked for one big gift. It was, usually it was like a guitar or an amplifier. And when I was 13 or 14, uh, I asked for a mountain bike. Now, my father at the time, uh, my stepfather, he, like a good father would, he kept telling me, no way. Okay. Well, on Christmas morning, I was very hopeful, but I didn't see any presents that resembled the size or the shape of a mountain bike in the living room. And how do you begin opening presents? You usually start with the little ones, right? You start small. They'll usually give you the cards from your aunt, and then they'll give you socks and then shirts. But while you're opening all of this, what are you thinking? You're thinking, okay, where is the big one? I'm thankful for this, but what is the, where is that big gift? Well, they're, what they're doing, your parents are building up the experience. They're building up. You're opening this, and then immediately you're going to this next smaller one, and they're building it up to a climax. And well, that Christmas, I'm glad to report that I did get the mountain bike, and it changed my life. Well, this is what Mark is doing with the word euthus, or immediately. He's in a hurry to give, the, give us the facts about Jesus, and he's leading us through this action-packed story to a climax experience in order to reveal the central themes of this book. Those themes are contained in the person of Jesus. He is the servant king who has inaugurated his kingdom through his suffering and death. Jesus is the mighty Messiah, the Christ, who is the Son of God, who has come to save sinners. These are the themes. So with that background in mind, join me in verse 1 of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, 
who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel hair, camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 1 the word gospel. The word means good news. And in ancient Israel, as well as the Greco-Roman world, a gospel was tied to a king's message. It was usually a victory announcement of, a, of battle or the pronouncement of a new king or a new ruler. And this message was delivered by king's messengers. And here we see in this passage, this good news is the victory message of King Jesus, who is Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And just like the kings of history, a herald who carries the king's message is to prepare the way of the king and deliver that message. And in this case, that messenger is John the Baptist. His, in essence, John's message was, the king is coming, the king is coming. In March of 2003, just before the invasion of Iraq, the U.S. forces dropped 360,000 leaflets in Iraq with several warning messages. To Saddam and his sons, the message was, you have 48 hours to leave Iraq to avert a war with the U.S. To the civilians or the local nationals, the message was the U.S. has no intentions of harming innocent civilians. To the Iraqi troops and their leaders, do not risk your life. Leave now and go home, for all unit commanders will be held accountable for non-compliance. Well, this is an example of a modern message given to a people from a modern king. The message was sent to prepare a people in Iraq, and the message was clear. The Americans are coming. Well, what we see in John the Baptist's message is a similar message. The king's message is sent through his messenger, John the Baptist, and verse 6 gives us an insight about him. John's diet reflects one who lives off the land, and his description is directly tied to the description of the prophet Elijah. Listen to Elijah's description in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, and compare that to John the Baptist. This is what it says about Elijah. He had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. John was the herald prepared by God to prepare the way for the king. And his life was the fulfillment of the office of the prophet Elijah, as this is later confirmed by Jesus himself. <clears throat> so what is the king's message? And this is the first point in your outline. The king's message is this, that the king has come to save sinners. The king has come to save sinners. This message is found in verse 4 through John's commitment to baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism is not an act of, uh, baptism is 
an act of being washed in water, and it represents the cleansing of sins. This, is, this act is not new. If you read through Leviticus and Numbers, uh, you're going to see a lot of cleansing involved in purification rituals, especially for priests, for lepers, and for men and women that need to be cleansed for holiness. But water baptism is inaugurated by John the Baptist in the New Testament as a provisional act and is later explicitly commanded by the Lord Jesus as an ordinance to be obeyed. But does baptism save sinners? The greatest problem we have here on earth is the problem of sin. Have you ever thought about that? See, most people assume that they'll go to some form of heaven when they die without knowing God personally. But it would be unfair and unjust for unholy sinners to enter into the presence of a holy God. And according to the moral laws of God, sinners must be forever cut off from God's holy presence, period. A water baptism in the Jordan River will not save you. A water baptism here in the church's baptistry is not going to save you. So what will save your soul in your death? The baptism of the Holy Spirit through faith in the Son of God, that is what will save your soul. This is what John the Baptist was referring to in verse 8. John's provisional baptism was merely the pointer to the ultimate baptism of the Holy Spirit that was to come by faith in Jesus Christ. See, when we trust in Jesus personally, the problem of our sin is dealt with, and you are forgiven of your sin. Even the worst sins for which you cannot come to forgive yourself is forgiven in Jesus Christ. Your sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. And the very Spirit of God enters into your life, and He lives in you as He baptizes you in the Spirit to make you a member of the body of Christ. The King's message is the good news that He has come to save sinners like you and me. In the late 90s, there were three baseball players who were chasing a home run record. Okay, their names were Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and Barry Bonds. It was a really exciting uh, race to watch. I remember my friends and I would follow this race, this home run race, and we would say to ourselves, these guys are defying human nature. Okay? These guys are uncanny. They are not human. Well, it turned out to be partly true because they were all juicing on steroids. They're all taking performance-enhancing drugs. But when we think about the nature of Jesus Christ, what about his nature? Who is this man who can conduct miracles, who can, divine, who can do only things that a divine God can do, who can forgive sinners, yet still eat and drink like you and I do? What is his nature? Is he God? Is he man or both? Well, let's look at his nature, the nature of his being, or as philosophers would call this, his ontology, his being. So join me in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, 
whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. <clears throat> Here in this passage, we see the king's nature or his being. And this is the second point in your outline. The king has become a human. The king has become one of us. Here, Jesus' identity is confirmed by the Father through an audible voice. You are my son. And this confirmation is what initiates Jesus' earthly ministry. His ministry then ends with a final confirmation from the centurion who said in chapter 15, verse 39, Truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus is the eternal divine Son who has taken on human nature in what we call the hypostatic union. You can write this down, you can look it up later. The hypostatic union, where the two natures of the divine and the human are brought into union as one, with no division or confusion. He is not two persons, but he is one person in perfect union of two natures. I like to think of it this way. You know, I used to use perp plus shampoo, okay? And it's less like the two bottles of shampoo and conditioner, but rather it is the perfect mix of the shampoo and conditioner in one. If you've ever used that, you know what I'm talking about. But also notice the explicit descriptions of the, the three persons of the Trinity in verse 10. We have three personal beings, the Father who confirms Jesus to be the Son of God, the Son who is baptized by John, and the Spirit who descends on Jesus like a dove. See, what we have here is the one God of the Old Testament revealed in three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are not three separate gods as claimed by the heretical tritheists, nor is it just one God in three modes where they appear in three different forms as claimed by the heretical modalists, but we have one God in one essence in three distinct persons. The three persons of the one God are not separate, but they are distinct. And some claim that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and so they claim that it's a made-up concept not to be believed. But this is how God has progressively revealed himself to us in history from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I like what R.C. Sproul once said about the Trinity. He said that when describing the Trinity, you can only uh, put and describe the fence or the boundaries around it. But the moment that you go in and try to explain away the Trinity is when you start committing heresies. See, the doctrines of the, the hypostatic union and the doctrine of the Trinity, they're both foundational truths of Christian orthodoxy. They're what we would call the first order doctrines that separates those from belonging to Christ in truth faith, faith from those who do not belong. And here's why this, these doctrines are so significant. You see, God is timeless and he is holy. He is eternal and he is without sin. For God, who is perfectly just then, to save a sinful people, the penalties for the sin of his people must be punished. It must be dealt with. But according to his law, 
The only payment a human can make for his own sin is his own blood. Listen to God's moral law on murderers and how to expiate or remove that sin from the land in Numbers chapter 35, verse 33. This is what his law says. It says, do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. In other words, the only way a murderer can be made right with God is for that murderer to be put to death. There is personal accountability, and there's individual responsibility for our sin. You see, you and I as sinners, if we have ever hated a brother or sister, then we have committed murder in our hearts. In the illumination of God's moral laws through Jesus' teaching, we have committed murder, and we, we, have, uh, we, have, we are sinners. We have made sin, and our sin cannot be removed according to God's laws, except by our own blood. So who can possibly help us from being put to death? Can anyone take the place of our sin for the wrongs that we have done? Whoever can take that place must be a human being whose blood must be shed. And he must be without sin like an unblemished lamb. And he must be one who cannot sin. But who can possibly fill such shoes? Only God is able to not sin, but only man is able to shed blood. What person can accomplish such a task? Only one who is truly God and one who is truly human. Jesus is a man who is too holy for John to untie his sandals. He is the man who can baptize us by the Holy Spirit. And he is the eternal Son of God who has forever taken on human nature to be our once-for-all sacrifice. He is the King, Jesus the Christ, and he has become one of us in order to save us. The King has come. Only God, who is eternally sinless, could live without sinning, but only man should pay for his own sin. And this is why it was necessary for Son of God to become a man, so that he himself could pay for our sin by making the provision through the Son to be punished as our substitute to forgive us of our sins. Not only does the Son forever take, on, take upon himself our human nature, but he commits himself to us through his baptism. See, Jesus is not a sinner who needs to be forgiven of any sins, but through his baptism, he does two things. He first sets the example for us to be baptized, to display our commitment to him. And second, he identifies with his people that he personally purchased for himself. Jesus' nature is that he is the eternal Son of God who has taken upon himself the very human nature so that we may be saved. Only Jesus can save us from our sin through his death. And Jesus the King has become one of us. And what do kings do? You wonder, well, what do kings do? <clears throat> Growing up, one of my favorite stories was the story of Robin Hood. I love that story. It's a story of a brave sharpshooter, a crack shot archer, 
who's, who's an underdog, who fights against injustice, and he's, he rescues a beauty, and he saves the day through his leadership. But I think for me, that story imprinted a negative image of what kings do. Okay, we often think of kings sitting on their thrones, eating grapes fed by servants, and they're being unjust to their people by taxing them and unfairly taking things from them. But is this what kings do? Throughout history, kings went out to fight battles. We see Israel in Israel's history, kings led troops in battle. In 2 Samuel 11, we read that in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed at Jerusalem. And what happened? He got himself into a lot of trouble, didn't he? Well, this is also why the colonial Americans loved General George Washington, because he was with the troops and he led them into the, the Revolutionary War. And he went through all the hardship that came with warfare with the troops. And that's why even today our president is called the commander-in-chief. He is the head of our military. Kings go out to fight battles, and King Jesus is no different. Let's look at the war he wages in verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Notice the repeated, repeated theme of the wilderness in these verses. Now, why is the wilderness so significant? Well, the wilderness is a big part of Israel's history. See, it's where the Israelites complained and whined to God about rescuing them from Egypt. And the 40 days of Jesus fasting and being tempted as he was tested is to show that though Israel failed to obey God, the Son of God will not fail. Though Adam and Eve failed when they were tempted by Satan, the new Adam will not fail in his temptations. The war this king wages is a spiritual one against the prince of darkness who is Satan, whose name means accuser or adversary. He is the same fallen angel who rebelled against God and successfully tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. The war Jesus came to wage against Satan and his demons is fought in the spiritual realm, but its effects are manifested in the physical realm. Talk to any missionary who served in third world countries. Talk to Adam this week and ask about the spiritual warfare he witnessed during the Dominican Republican trip. The wild beast mentioned in verse 13, that's kind of a strange add-on, isn't it? But why would Mark add that in? The wild beasts are part of the, the physical manifestations of the consequences of sin. It certainly adds to the dangers that Jesus faced in the wilderness. But when was the last time when there were no wild beasts? Think of that. When was the last time when there were no wild beasts? Well, it was in the Garden of Eden. God had provided everything we needed in that garden. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God, with one another, and with the creation. But you see, it was their sin that caused them to be separated from God. Sin severed our intended fellowship with our loving Father in heaven. Sin caused us to hate one another 
as it quickly expresses itself in murder in the son of in their son Abel. And sin caused the whole creation to groan and suffer together as we see the thorns and thistles and wild beasts. But Jesus went into the heart of the enemy territory. He is literally driven by the Holy Spirit to go behind the enemy lines. He went into the wilderness, the very place we created by our sin, to redeem what God had created and to fight the battle which we failed against Satan. We have a king who has waged war against sin and Satan, and he is victorious. For he has won the war against sin and evil. The king has come to fight for us, and that is the good news. It came to accomplish on our behalf what we could not do. We have a king who continues to fight for us in our struggles. If you have repented of your sin and asked God for forgiveness in Christ as you trust in him, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. He has given us his spirit so that even when we are in the wilderness of this life, he is with us. If you're in the wilderness, whether it's through the struggles of your sin or whether it's your life circumstances, I want you to know that you have a king who has gone before you, who has been in the wilderness, and who is fighting your battles. He is for you. He calls you to abide with him in your troubles. So cast your concerns, your burdens on the king who loves you and who has saved you by his blood. If you have, if you have never known this king personally, I invite you to turn to him. I invite you to trust in him. This eternal king desires to know you and he has made a way for you to come to him so that do not delay. You turn from your sins and you turn to him today. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the king who is Jesus our savior, the son of God. It is the good news that the king has come. His message is that he has come to forgive sinners of their sin. His nature is the divine son of the triune God who has forever taken on humanity to become one of us in order to save us. And his war is a war against sin and evil and he has come to fight for his people. We no longer have to wait for messengers to say, the king is coming, the king is coming. Let us rejoice for the king of the universe has come to save sinners. Let us proclaim the name of this great king so that others may hear this gospel and enter into his kingdom. He is worthy of our praise and he is worthy of our worship. We eagerly wait for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the King. Let's pray. I invite you to bow before the King and lay your burdens down at his feet as we reflect in silence. And in a moment, I will close us in a word of prayer. O oh Lord, we bow before you. 
You are the High King of Heaven. You have secured our victory over sin and death. You stepped down from your throne of glory, and you took upon yourself our very nature, so that you may live to be crucified for our sin. We thank you for the love that you displayed in Jesus our Lord. As we look to the cross, may we hate the sin that caused Christ to be crucified, and may we be empowered to abide with you in our deepest valleys as you lead us in the battle for holiness. For you are the King we trust, and we worship you now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.